and families are an amazing place. I tell you what, uh, the value of families cannot be accurately estimated. Um, and so I'm not even going to try. But I, I hope you know that the families of this church are very precious in the sight of God. Um, each household, each marriage, um, I, I realize that that is a special target of Satan. Um, but God is greater than he that is in this world. Amen. I'm privileged to share this time with you. Um, it's, it's cool to see some familiar faces, uh, faces that I haven't seen yet and have yet to meet. And so I, I'm, glad, I'm glad that we're in, in God's house together. Uh, the reality is that when God brings his people together, he has a very special purpose in mind. And I know that God is not one to waste our time. And so I want to just start with the time of silent prayer. Is that okay? Uh, I want to get into the Word of God this morning, but I realize that that's sacred business. And so we're just going to bow our heads together, spend 30 seconds or so in prayer. But I want you to pray not just for yourself, but for the person that's next to you or, or you know, to your right or to your left, just in silent prayer asking that God's Holy Spirit would speak to him or her this morning. Okay, so let's bow our heads. Father, this morning as we seek to pray for one another, It's almost impossible to read each other's hearts and minds. But I thank you, God, that you are one who doesn't look at the outward appearance, but looks upon the heart. And so you see the heart need. You see how full our cups are. You see how empty they may be. And God, this morning we pray that as we open up the word of God, that somehow you would speak the love of God to our hearts. I thank you that you're able to do this. I thank you that you're able to minister to each one of us in the way that we individually need because you are our Savior. And in Jesus' name we do pray. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you to grab a Bible, if not your own, then the Bible that's in the pew in front of you. In your bulletins, you may have noticed that there's another sermon outline or a sermon handout. That's just for you. That's a little tool, a resource. Take it or leave it. But this is just an opportunity for you to take some notes. There's a blank side on the back. If my notes are distracting, go ahead and turn it onto the other side and, and go ahead and take your own. But this morning, we're continuing our, our four. Actually, we're going to do, do a five-part series by the time we're done. Discipleship 101. Welcome to the School of Discipleship once again. Now this morning, as it has been the last few weeks, we are looking for those telltale signs of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We looked, uh, in part one, we looked at the discipline of the wilderness, the habit of drawing away and spending alone time with God. And then last week, we looked at the discipline of the Word, actually prioritizing the Word, uh, immersing ourselves in the Word, and actually living the word out in our lives. Now this week, we're looking not so much at a practice, we're looking not so much at a habit, but we're looking at a state of heart that affects the way we live. And so it's Discipleship 101, the blessing of having nothing. 
the blessing of having nothing. If you were to think about, if you were to think about a celebrity that has gotten a lot of media airtime in the last week or two, I'm not, try, I'm not thinking of anybody in specific, but just think about some celebrities that have been on the radio, news media, uh, whatever, television. Think about those celebrities and ask yourself, what is it that makes that individual so famous? What are they famous for? And you begin to make a short list of th certain things that, that certain people are famous for just being famous. <laughs> they just get a lot of media coverage or whatever it might be. Maybe it's, they're famous for their beauty or their appearance. Maybe they're famous for their position or power or wealth. Maybe they're famous for their athletic prowess. I don't know what it might be, but there are certain things that when you look at celebrities across the board, there's just a short list of things that people are famous for, and it begins to tell you, it, at least it cues me in, to the things that this culture values. Have you noticed that the things that, the people that we idolize, there are certain things about them that we, we emphasize? And when you make that list, well, beauty, appearances, money, athletic skill, you know, it's, it's really not very deep, wouldn't you say? Now, I don't know how many of us um, viewed the National Prayer Breakfast. I think it was this last Sunday. Um, one of our very own, Dr. Benjamin Carson, was actually a guest speaker, and he spoke for 27 minutes, a good lengthy speech. Now, you know, if you're following this in the news, you'll realize that obviously conservatives are, are praising him, and then there are those on the other end that are just like, oh, he was slapping Obama in the face. Now, I'm not trying to get into that this morning. Trust me, okay? But there is something that Ben Carson said that really caught my attention because it showed the disparity of the kinds of things our culture values. He was talking about the value of education. I don't know, for those of us that, that saw this, you may remember he was talking about the value of education. And he talked about this, this scholar fund called the Carson Scholar Fund that he and his wife began. And he explained the rationale. He, he explained how he and his wife, 16 years ago, started going from school to school just to kind of observe things in the school place. And this is what he quoted. Oh man, I keep leaving my things up here. But this is what he quoted. He said, we went to these schools and we'd see all these trophies, state basketball, state wrestling. The quarterback was the big man on campus. And then he asks a pointed question. What about the intellectual superstar? What did they get? A National Honor Society pin? A pat on the head? They're their little nerd? <laughs> Nobody cared about them. And is it any wonder that sometimes the smart kids try to hide? Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to blast athletic programs. I'm pointing to something that he got to, and that's that we have a tendency to misjudge the value of things. We have a tendency to place undue value on things that really don't matter in the end. You're there in the handout, right there, in light of the kinds of celebrities our society idolizes today, we must admit the common tendency to place undue value on things that do not really matter, both in the social realm and also in the spiritual realm. Do we do this in the spiritual realm as well? If we're looking for certain things that, that make a disciple, do we, do we look for the things of, of show and glamour and really undervalue the things that God places emphasis on? 
Look at Desire of Ages, page 305. This is actually describing Jesus' audience as he sat down on the Sermon on the Mount and began his discourse in Matthew chapter 5. Desire of Ages, page 305, it says this. The multitudes were amazed at Jesus' teaching. The people had come to think that happiness consisted in the possession of things of this world and that fame and the honor of men were much to be coveted. Boy, is it any wonder that sometimes we turn things upside down, that we have values that are really not the values of God, and we begin to equate power and prestige with the favor or blessing of God. Hmm. It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous uh, line to walk. But is it possible that we've fallen into the same trap when we're talking about, okay, what is it that marks a disciple? Well, um, they look really good on Sabbath morning. What is it that marks a disciple? Well, uh, they're always doing this and this and this for every sort of ministry. I mean, they have so many positions, no one can count. What are the things that we look for when we try to understand what makes a true disciple? I would submit to us this morning that Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, turns things upside down. It's the great reversal. So go there with me. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're there together. It was read for us in our scripture this morning. Matthew chapter 5. When you're there, say, I'm there. I'm there. All right, Matthew chapter 5. Now you'll notice that Matthew chapter 5 comes immediately after or on the heels of Matthew chapter 4. All right. Now we've already looked at this. We looked at the temptations in the wilderness and how Jesus begins his public ministry. Now just look with your eyes at chapter 4, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 17, the Bible says, From that time, Jesus, what's the next word in your Bible? Began. Okay, so he began to preach and to say, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this was a message he was preaching from place to place. And you can imagine the kind of buzz that this created in the multitudes, okay? Now you notice that by the end of chapter 4, it says in verse 24, move your eyes down, verse 24, it says, Then his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Verse 25, great multitudes followed him. Now, literally, like wildfire across the Palestinian landscape, Jesus' fame is spreading, and he's preaching a message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now remember, what are the people thinking? How are the people viewing what it means to have God's favor? If they're thinking about uh, the possession of wealth as a sign of God's favor, you can imagine that this kingdom that they're waiting to enter is a kingdom in which, which yeah, it's the, exactly, it's a kingdom of prosperity. It's a kingdom of, of, of social freedom. It, it's a kingdom of being freed from our political oppressors. It's a, it's a kingdom of Ritz and glitz. And they see it in their eyes. They just, they want it so badly. And then so in chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. 
You can just kind of imagine that, that the crowds are, are full of anticipation. It's almost like an inauguration of sorts. They, they've been hearing, okay, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? And so they're hanging on every word, eyes glazed over with the values of this world. And Jesus turns things upside down by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Come on, come on, where, where's the cha-ching, you know, like where's the bling and bling? And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Come on, where's, where's the, the, the tables of feasting and the parties? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they shall be filled. Jesus is turning things upside down. And we're just going to go through this very quickly, but here in your handout, you, you notice that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, these first four of the eight Beatitudes, we're just looking at the first four, the last half we'll look at next week. Jesus pronounces divine blessing over those who experience four conditions of lack. Did you catch it? Four conditions of lack. This is the common thread that's going through the blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. These are four conditions of lack. So what is it? Why are these... So great blessings. And what is it that, that's lacking? What is the blessing of having nothing? Tell me about it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So I was studying this, verse 3. Blessed are the poor. The word, it comes from a verb, an action, that means to be bent over. Almost to be bent out of shape. So when we're talking about being poor, it's, it's the kind of destitution that literally doubles one over because they just cannot bear the weight of their burdens anymore. They're so poor that, that they can't even stand up straight. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's talking about those who in their heart of hearts know that they are spiritually bankrupt. Those who in their heart of hearts know that when they stand before God, they have nothing to offer him. There's no bargaining power. There's nothing to commend me to you. I'm sorry, I don't have anything. Blessed are those. And Jesus says, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because when you don't feel like you have possession of anything, Jesus says you already have possession of everything. Wow. <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit. They are lacking, you can write it in, lacking spiritual riches. They're lacking spiritual riches. Probably the best example I can think of this, uh, best illustration, Jesus once told a parable in Luke chapter 18. Maybe you remember. There was a Pharisee and a tax collector who went up to the temple to pray. Do you remember this story? Pharisee can't get off himself. <laughs> he's praying about how good he is and how thankful he's not to be that person over there. And the tax collector, do you remember his posture? He can't even look up to heaven. He's beating his, excuse me, he's beating his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me, 
a sinner. If you want to understand what poor in spirit means, it is not the Pharisee in that parable, but it is the tax collector who knows he has nothing before God. That is the blessing of having nothing. Because when you're in that state of mind, you know that you need a Savior. You know that if you realize that there's nothing in you to depend on, you're a great candidate to depend on God. And that's the blessing of having nothing. What about the next verse? Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who, who grieve and lament. We're talking about a, a very visible, a manifest grief, a grief that just cannot hide itself anymore. And the reality is that life with its curves, life with its twists and turns, its bumps and bruises, its it's swinging at us. We cannot always just roll with the punches. We, some of us know firsthand, yes, we know what it is to mourn. Whether it's mourning the, the brokenness of relationships, whether it's mourning the loss of loved ones, whether it's mourning uh, certain situations that you just cannot help, mourning the, the dashing of hopes and cherished dreams. Jesus says, look, when you're like that, you're blessed. How can that be a blessing? Because of Jesus' promise. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now you need to understand something about the way that uh, sometimes scripture expresses itself. When it says they shall be comforted, it's meaning that they're not comforting themselves, but they're being comforted by someone else. Do you understand that? Yes or no? Yeah? Okay, it's, a, it's called a passive verb. But there's this phenomenon in Greek grammar. It's called the divine passive. Because uh, the, the men who were writing the scriptures, particularly Matthew, who is writing to a Jewish audience, they were very succinct. They were very, uh, they were very sparse in saying the name of God. Which is why Matthew always calls it the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of God. Right? They wanted to respect the name of God. And so, oftentimes, that respect would carry down to the way they, they used their verbs. If they wanted to portray God doing something, they would. so if, if, if Matthew wanted to portray that God was going to comfort those who mourn, he would say, and they shall be comforted. With the assumption that it is God himself who does the comforting. Whoa! So here we are, blessed are those who are manifest grieving, lamenting, mourning over life. And they're blessed because God himself is standing by their side. They shall be comforted by God himself. Now this, this gets even deeper, actually. This gets even deeper because in Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 9, she talks about the, a different kind of mourning. While this, of course, mourning includes all sorts of things, the loss of all sorts of things, the grieving over all sorts of tragedies, really, it's related to the poor in spirit aspect in verse 3. Realizing that mourning is a true heart sorrow for sin. It's the sorrow of repentance. You know, it's one thing to say, yes, I have Spiritually speaking, I have nothing in my pockets. I've got nothing to offer. I'm excuse me, spiritually poor. But it's another thing to mourn over that spiritual poverty. And, she, and Jesus is saying, look, when you mourn over your sinfulness, 
you're blessed because God is going to give you the comfort you need. That's why he calls the Holy Spirit the comforter. Because when we're, we're only going to need the comforter when we're uncomfortable. Does that make sense? Yeah? <laughs> now the reality is this, that you and I, with the way media flaunts sin in front of us, we are often desensitized to sin's sinfulness. And so Jesus says, look, when you're, when you're broken, when your heart is broken by the things that break the heart of God, that's a good state to be in. And I would suggest that this isn't just mourning within our own sinfulness. That is, like, when you look at your own heart, you mourn over that sin. I would suggest that it's, it's mourning over the sin that we see around us. If you're still taking notes, Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4. Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4 God is saying he's giving divine favor upon those who sigh and cry over the abominations that are among his people. People who, who look at the way, the condition, not just of their own hearts, but they look at the condition of the world, they look at the condition of God's professed people, and they sigh and cry over it because, look, these are shortcomings, yes, but they're shortcomings that put Jesus on the cross. And that is reason to grieve. Jesus says, when you feel that grief, your heart is in a tender spot, ready to be comforted by me. Blessed are those who mourn. So, so really, if you're, if you're feeling in your handout, what is the lack here? What, what is it that they lack? Well, it's lacking a relish for sin. Sin has lost its charm. Sin has lost its glamour. And you say, no, no, no. Sin is not something to celebrate. Sin is not to so something just to, to sit in front of a screen and, and watch in front of my eyes. No, sin is something to mourn over, to sigh and cry over. It's lacking a relish for sin. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. What's the next one? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And really, when I look at this, it's, it, it's not, it's not uh, blessed are the weak. That, that's not exactly what Jesus is saying. He's not, he's not just saying blessed are, are those who, who are like a mat to walk all over. Jesus is saying blessed are the meek who are humble enough to realize that they can't grab their own goodies, but they're relying on God to give them the goodies. That's why the promise is for they shall inherit it's not they shall earn. It's not they shall grab. It's they shall inherit. So really, meekness is the result of poor in spirit and then of, of mourning over sin. When the result is that you have this stance of humility that says, look, I can't do it on my own, so I'm just going to trust that God will do it for me. That's meekness. That's, meek that's, that's the blessing. And so what are they lacking? Those who are meek, they lack an aggressive ambition. They lack an aggressive ambition. You can fill that in. The meek are lacking an aggressive ambition. That is, they lack a, 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 an attitude that says, I must fill my own cup. They're, they're without that attitude. And when you're like that, blessed are the meek, the assurance is you shall inherit. You shall inherit the earth. All right, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And finally, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, some of us know what it's like to be hungry. 
I imagine that even in this country, many of us in reality don't know what it's like to be hungry. But when you're hungry, you're craving because you're famished, you're lacking whatever it is you're looking for. And in this case, you're lacking your own righteousness. And that's why you hunger and thirst for someone else's righteousness. And only God alone can give it. Only God alone can give it. So they're hungry, they're thirsty, they realize they can't satisfy their own need, and so they're looking to God saying, look, I have no righteousness to satisfy my hunger. All my righteousness, Isaiah 64 verse 6, is as filthy rags. And so they hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God. And Jesus says, the blessing of having no righteousness of your own is that you shall be filled with the righteousness of God. Man, that word, filled, it's actually a pretty graphic word. It, you shall be gorged, essentially. You shall be, uh, God will stuff it in your mouth. Psalm 81.10, another cross-reference. Uh, open your mouths wide and I will fill it. That's what God says. But here's the thing. How can our hands or our mouths be opened wide if we don't know that they're already empty? And that's the blessing of having nothing. You see it? Yes or no? Jesus is turning things upside down. He's saying, look, 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 look. All the things that you value, all the things that this world presents to you as what it means to be under God's favor, well, let me just tell you the truth. <laughs> when you're poor in spirit, when you mourn, when you're meek, when you're hungry and thirsty, not for the things of this world, but for my righteousness, that's the blessing of having nothing. Now, some of us might be, as I was studying this message, yeah, the, the thought crossed my mind, boy, this is kind of a depressing, <laughs> a depressing subject, the blessing of having nothing. Why should I keep dwelling? Why should I have this attitude of mind where I constantly have nothing? Well, the reality is that the opposite attitude is a curse. If you have the attitude that I am rich and I have need of nothing, that, my friends, is a dangerous place to be in. Maybe you remember in Revelation chapter 3 that there are messages that are given to specific churches, and the seventh of those churches is a church in Laodicea. Does that sound familiar? Jesus says he was about to spit them out because they were lukewarm. He didn't know what to do with them. He wished they were either hot or cold. And then he got to the very attitude of their heart, because you say I am rich and have need of nothing, yet you do not know that you are naked and poor, wretched, blind, miserable. Whoa. <laughs> and they thought they were hot stuff before God. You see, the curse of that attitude that says, I'm fine. The curse of that attitude is that there's no sense of dependence upon the one we depend on. The curse of that attitude is that we keep God at arm's length and we're okay with that. So what's the blessing of having nothing? Well, it keeps us leaning on God. That's number one. You can write that down. The blessing of having nothing is that it keeps us leaning on God. And I would suggest, number two, it keeps us loving toward others. Now that's big. Leaning on God and loving toward others. 
Think about the last time you weren't necessarily loving towards someone else. Think about the last time some words escaped out of your mouth that were more of a character of the kingdom of darkness than it was of the character of the kingdom of heaven. Think about the last time something you did, something you said, even just something you, just in the gesture or your, your facial expression, just think about the last time you, you cut someone down rather than built someone up. How, how is your attitude about yourself at that time? Maybe you were up here while the other person was down there. I mean, I'm not just saying you. I'm talking about myself. <laughs> like the, the last time I remember things being not so loving, there was an attitude where I was, and that other person was someone that needed to be put in their place. Boy, the blessing of having nothing is yes, it keeps us leaning on God, keeps us reaching towards God, depending on God. But you know what? Some of us need to know the blessing of having nothing so that we can be more loving toward those around us. Whether in our home circle, our neighborhood. Oh, that neighbor of mine won't turn the music down. You know, <laughs> uh, why, do, why do they keep putting the trash right there? Why can't they just move it? Oh, you know, uh, whatever it might be. I mean, it can be from little things to big things. The way we interact with brother and sister here in our own church family. Friends. We need to know the blessing of having nothing. And so it keeps us leaning on God. It keeps us loving toward others. I wrote there Luke chapter 18. That's the parable. That's the parable of the, the Pharisee and the publican. In fact, you would admit that the Pharisee definitely was not leaning on God and definitely was not loving toward his brother. In fact, the introduction to that parable in Luke chapter 18 verse 9 it says, Jesus spoke this parable because there were some who trusted in themselves and despised others. <laughs> that was the very purpose he shared that parable. It's an illustration of the fact that when you think you've got it all, you're really not depending on God, and you're really not treating your brother or sister like he or she deserves. And so, let's ask ourselves, okay, if the blessing of having nothing is an attitude or a state of mind that we need to, to really possess at all times, then how do I cultivate that? What are, some, what, what are some practical things I can do? Let me just suggest three, and, and we'll just keep it short. The, the three things that I, I have written down here, number one, ask. Letter A, ask. Letter B, boast. And letter C, come. So let's talk about this. Ask. Ask for eyes to see as God sees. The reality is that you and I uh, have a heart that is deceitfully wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, uh, it's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We, we, we cannot accurately assess the poverty of spirit that we have. So we need to ask God. It's a miracle. It's a miracle to have those kinds of eyes. Okay? Ask God for eyes to see. Let her be boast. Boast in God's strengths, not your own. What is it? Psalm 34, I think. Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You know, sometimes in the way that we interact, whether it's small talk here, around the, the water cooler at work, or in our classroom, play, whatever, the kinds of things that we talk about, we're not really boasting about God's goodness. We're either boasting about our own goodness or the world's glory. And really, that's not doing anything for cultivating the blessing of having nothing. You know, um, 
So, so we boast in God's strengths and God's glory, and I would say boast in God's values. Not boasting in those things, not celebrating or spotlighting those things that are ungodly, but rather those things that are of a godly character. Uh, you know, I've already hit on it, but, but sometimes just the way that we spend our leisure time, the ways that we, uh, the ways that we talk, the ways that we, the things that we celebrate on the screen, like I said before, that is not going to cultivate this sense of having nothing. Let me think of a better way to articulate this. <laughs> because as we watch certain things, even if we're silent about it, as we watch certain things, it's really giving glory where glory is not due. And even if we don't agree with those things, the very fact that we're silent witnesses to these things, it boasts in the kingdom of darkness and its values. And so I, I just want to urge us to take a stand and say, I will not boast in those things of unglory. I would rather boast in something of great glory. Should I just leave it there? Enough said? <laughs> well, maybe we'll pick it up another Sabbath. But friends, I think this is something that maybe the Holy Spirit needs to convict our own hearts upon sometimes. Um, what, what are the things that we boast in? What are the things that we celebrate? What are the things that we spotlight in our attention and the things that we, we invest in? So ask, boast, come. Come to the cross daily. Now, I don't know if maybe you've heard that cliche phrase before, come to the cross daily. Okay, come to the cross daily. Now, I've picked up a certain habit since about two and a half years ago. I've picked up a certain habit that in the mornings when I spend my morning devotion with God, I read a psalm just to get my heart warmed up in praise, you know, the, the whole boasting thing. And I also read a story of the cross. Like I go to Matthew chapter 27, verses 24 to 54, and I just read from Jesus going to Pilate to the cross. And day after day, my heart's prayer is that God would resensitize me to the sinfulness of sin. Because it's that very thing that I cherish, it's that very thing that I don't want to let go, that put him on a cross that he would not walk away from. And so coming to the cross daily is something that I think, um, that I think every true disciple ought to really hold on to. And so I'll just, I'll just leave it there. Ask, boast, come. At the end of this message, I, I wonder, just kind of looking over the four conditions, poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Which of those conditions, which of those conditions seems strangely unfamiliar to you? Which of those conditions seems foreign to you? Which of those conditions seems like something you'd rather actually just ignore than hear in a sermon? When, when you think, when you look on that list and you say, uh, that's, that's really not part of my own experience, I wonder if the Holy Spirit is convicting you upon that. And so just conversation between your heart and God. What, what is the condition of nothingness that you want me to experience this week? 
So ask God that in your, in your prayer time. And then ask yourself, okay, of these three things, what can I hold on to? What, what are some of the practical things that I can do? How can I ask God more? How can I boast or not boast in the things that aren't worthy of boasting in? And how can I come to the cross daily? Um, friends, this morning, we've talked about the blessing of having nothing. And really now the ball is in our court individually, personally. And so what will you do? Um, will you seek and let God give you the blessing of having nothing? Just raise your hand to heaven and just say, yeah, I'm willing. Just take me there, Jesus. Take me there. Yeah. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Father, this is a somewhat heavy message, and it's amazing to think that you started your discourse in this way. But God, here we are sitting in these pews, wanting to be disciples. And Lord, if you want to turn things upside down in our experience, go ahead and do it. I pray for each one. Maybe there are certain buttons, certain toes that were pushed or stepped on that, uh, that really your Holy Spirit is trying to get our attention with. And so this morning we commit ourselves to you and your keeping. God, we want you to transform us into your image. So please, remind us through the week, through whatever means necessary, of the blessing of having nothing. Because in you we have everything. In Jesus' name, let the family say, Amen.